when I was a kid, there were days that I would sit next to my dad in the morning when he would read his Bible. And I was pretty young, but I know I was old enough to read, and, and I could hold my own in reading. So one day, I distinctly remember sitting down next to my father, and I tried to see if I could beat him, if I could read the Bible passage that he was reading in his head faster than my head. And so I remember on this day, he told me which psalm he was reading. He was reading from the psalms. And so I read it in my head. My eyes went down the page. And I waited. And I waited. And I waited. I was like, holy cow, my dad's a slow reader. So much so that finally I asked him, I was like, Dad, what's taking you so long? Like, I finished the page minutes ago. And my dad gave me a great gift that morning, and he probably doesn't even remember it. Uh, But he first taught me that Bible reading isn't a race, which is good. It's not just fastest one down the page, first one to finish through the book wins. But then he also gave me this gift where he, again, in the Bible, he pointed his finger to the psalm that we were reading, and he pointed off to the side in the margin And he said, see that word? Uh, It's the word Selah. So if you have have a a Bible, um, you you can turn like to Psalm 24 even, and you'll see it off to the side. I think it shows up 71 times in the book of Psalms. And it shows up, I think, a few other times in another part of the scriptures too. But my dad said, see that word Selah? It means pause. And so he Uh, went on to explain to me that as he's reading through the psalm, when he comes to that word Selah in the margin, he stops and he pauses and he tries to read through and pray through understanding what it is that he just read. And, And I never read the psalms the same. Now, since then, since growing up, Um, I've done some more investigation on that word, and I know there are some Hebrew scholars that debate what does the word Selah mean. Uh, Some say that it's a musical notation because the Psalms were meant to be sung, and so it's an indication of where either there was a break or a place for the instrumentalist to take a breath. Uh, Some break down uh, the term in a variety of ways. Um, some say it means to pause, some say it means to take a break, some say it means to be silent, some say it means to look back and reflect upon, uh, it may, may, might mean to stop and take a breath, again, thinking about musicians. But whatever the precise meaning we could argue for a while, I love all those nuances of the word. Pause. Slow down. Stop. Take a break. Ponder, be silent, be quiet, reflect, reset. Some have said, next slide, that Selah is a purposeful pause. So what does that have to do with today, tonight? Uh, I'm calling the next four weeks Selah, calling a Selah on us. Uh, in the sense that it's probably going to be part sermons, part refresher, part vision, part discussion, part questions. Uh, But it feels like a good time 
uh, for a purposeful pause. Because uh, we will get into some more Bible studies. Right? We just finished the book of Philemon the last month. And Lent is coming soon for us to prepare for Easter. Easter's not that far off. Uh, so before we dive into another book, another series, and some more content, uh, and before we d- dive into the next series, I think it's an appropriate time for us for a Selah, right? It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to me for us to take some of that time in a purposeful way. And I would say so, especially in light of where we all have just been. Let me share a bit about that first. This past week, I had a friend text me an article. He said, I think you may like this. And I found it super in, intriguing, and it was immensely relevant. And it was an article. It was a business article. Oftentimes, when people share their business articles with me, I'm like, ah, oh, okay. I roll my eyes. Uh, but this was really good. It was written by an Army veteran. Her name is Adria Horn. Uh, she's a lieutenant colonel who is now an executive vice president of some major telecom company. Uh, but the crux of her insight had to do with the phenomenon, and maybe you've heard people talk about it recently, known as the Great Resignation. You heard about that phrase? The Great Resignation is the fact that people all over our country right now are either quitting their jobs, getting new jobs, or moving to find new work. Some of them without even fully knowing what they're getting into. They just know they don't want to work their old job anymore. And so employers across our country are trying to say, what do we do now when no one wants to work for me? Or people are changing jobs. People are moving all over the place. So here's uh, her thesis that she wrote about why so many people are leaving the workforce. And again, in this, employers are scratching their head saying, why are all the employees leaving? And her thesis is, it's not just one thing for the employers to not know what's happening. She says, employees don't know why employees are leaving. They don't know why they're leaving, and this is more important. The great resignation is actually a normal response that most people have never gone through. And she, with her military background, says, I've experienced this kind of thing after every return from deployment. And I come back, and there's confusion and grief and anger. And again, her point, I think, is well taken. As the employers and people are trying to figure out what's going on around us. And this applies for jobs, but I think this applies to churches. I think this applies to all of us. People are experiencing something right now in our lives, and we're not quite sure what it is. And the people themselves don't know why they're leaving or changing themselves. But she compares what we're kind of going through to what it was like for her to come back from deployment. And maybe there are a few military people in the room you can identify with what this has been like when you came home yourself. She says, you come home, you're expecting it to be great. You're home again. This should be great. But the biggest feeling is that things are different. The kids are different. Your favorite restaurant closed. Your pet died. Your softball team broke up. The couch your partner bought while you were away is great, but it's not the couch you knew. Home isn't normal. It isn't as it was. Things don't meet your expectations, and you seem to have lost control, so your return experience doesn't feel good at all. Like, that's not my couch. I want my couch. 
She continues. She says, all the patterns and routines are broken. You've lost your tribe. Your sense of community and belonging at work depended on cohesive social networks, and so many of those have been disrupted during the pandemic. You feel left behind somehow. It's very hard to process emotionally. Being off balance that way puts people on edge, and it throws them off kilter. She goes, no one has been debriefed on this. And there is no end date, because the dates keep changing. Two weeks to flatten the curve. A year and a half, two years ago. (laughs) Next slide. She says, the vagueness, the confusion, the sense of threat, the lack of control lingers. No wonder people are feeling burned out. Everyone has been through collective trauma. Next slide. It may be that the best thing employers can do right now is to stop thinking of the great attrition or the great resignation as a business problem and instead simply address it as a human problem. I think that's just profound insight because most of us, we don't even know why we feel what we feel. And no one has been debriefed on it, and it's not just a business problem or a political problem, though there are business issues and political issues and economic issues. Like, this is a human problem that we're all facing right now. And, and we can look at that through a variety of lenses, business-wise, economic-wise, church-wise as well. As we take a month of doing some conversations here to pause and reflect and to be quiet and to think about what's going on in our lives and in our church. I want to name that like for us as a community, a lot has changed too. Right? What's changed for us as a church in the last two years? Go ahead. People leaving? We're in Harbor Church. (laughs) At four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. That's different. What else? Staff changes? New people come in? Anything else? You don't know who goes to your church anymore. Yeah. Which is disorienting. The phrase she used, you lost your tribe, maybe? People that you're used to, like, this is my people? And you're like, who are my people anymore? I don't know. Yeah. And so here we are meeting in a different building and a different space and a different time and some of your dear friends aren't a part of our church anymore. The faces are different. Some new people have come. Some of you may be wondering, where do I fit in? Do I fit? If I fit? What's God up to? What is Reality Church about? And again, I just want to start even some of our conversations this month by saying, that's okay. We need to name that it is okay. You're feeling that way, and it's okay to feel that way because we're all experiencing it. The proverbial couch is different. And the world seems different, and we're different. And the vagueness, the confusion, the sense of threat, the lack of control, it continues to linger. So I just want to give us a little holy permission to name that, acknowledge that. And we're not going to spend all of our time on this all month long. But if we don't acknowledge this, It's not helpful. So, what I want to do before I open up the scriptures tonight, don't worry, I'm not preaching a super long sermon. 
But on your chairs, I, I tried to give it on most chairs. I didn't put them in the front row because no one sits in the front row anyway, except there are two cards here in the front. If you, if you need to take a little white piece of paper, please. There should be a pen in the seat back for most of the seats around you too. And I just want to ask you, like, what's... We're going to take two minutes. What's been hard for you in this past season? And I'm going to specifically ask you two, two things in two different ways. I want you to name one from a, a personal, so you can address that however you want to, whether that's just in your own life or your family or your work or your friends. What, what are some discouragements and what are some of the disruptions that you've had personally? What are some discouragements and disruptions? And then I want you to turn it over and do the same thing. For us as a church, what are some discouragements and disruptions that you've experienced in our church? And I do want to ask, I want you to be candid and honest, but I'm going to invite us to turn these in. Not with your name on it, no, it's not going on Facebook. But don't put something on there that you don't mind someone else looking at. But be honest. So, discourage, discouragements, and disruptions. For you, and on the backside, for our you as in our church context. And if you're new, this is your first week. Welcome. Glad that you're here. Dis discouragements and disruptions. What's, what's been discouraging for you in the last two years? What's been a disruption for you in the last two years? Personally and then church-wise. That's fine. Yeah, if you've been a part of other churches, that's fine. Name it. Discouragements and disruptions.
So some of you are like, oh, I got a oh, thing. Don't worry. Um, here's what I want to do, though, is... Actually, I'm not going to do it differently than I've planned. Um, if you're able to turn it in, um, when we take communion tonight, to drop it off on the table next to the communion elements when we come by later. And if you need some more time to take it and bring it back, that's fine. But we're going to do something with that next week. Okay? But I didn't want to just give it to you to take home and do it, because I know you may not do it. And I love you. So, um, so again, as we take communion later on tonight, if you're willing to put those on, again, don't put your name on it. Or I'm trying to do it and tell and then track you down. Um, but we're going to do something with that next week. But again, I believe there's a need for us to continue to reorient, refresh where we're at, who we are, what is God saying, what is God doing. Selah, a purposed pause for the month of February. So this past year, uh, I listened to the biography of a person named Eugene Peterson. He's the guy who wrote the message. Pastor, professor, wrote lots of, lots of books. Um, but as I listened to it, uh, there was a section in his biography where his son, his son's name was Leaf, is Leaf, he talked about how the fact that his dad only preached one sermon. Uh, not literally, uh, but practically. And this is what he said. He said, Dad, novelists only write one book. They find their voice, their book, and they write it over and over again. You only preach one sermon. You just like disguise it in different ways and you say it in different ways. And he says, people who write books actually do the same thing. They, just find, the, they find their story and they just write it a million ways. And then at Eugene Peterson's funeral, he read this statement about his dad, again, to his dad. He said, they thought you were a magician in your long black robe, hiding so much in your ample sleeves, always pulling something fresh and making them think it was just for them. They didn't know how simple it all was. They were blind to your secret. For 50 years, you stole into my room at night and whispered softly to my sleeping head. It's the same message over and over. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. I think that's beautiful for a son to recognize in his dad. He's like, that. He's like you wrote, he wrote dozens of books. He did a paraphrase of the Bible. He was a professor and a pastor who preached sermons. He's like, out of all the books, out of all the sermons, out of all the lectures, he's like, this is what you were saying over and over again. Is that God loves you, and he's on your side, and he's coming after you, and he's relentless. And Eugene found a way to preach, write, speak that over and over and over and over again. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. And I know that at age 44, I'm still finding my message, my one message. But I think it's similar to that. 
And if you're wondering, like, what's kind of at the core of our church and who we are, again, I could throw out buzzwords like the Trinity or God or the Gospel or being disciples, making disciples. And I, yes, God's at the center of all things. The good news of the kingdom of God's at the center of things. We want as a mission to be and make disciples who are radically transformed by the Gospel. Um, but I guess underneath all of that, this is what I want to share with you. And I want to share it with you over and over and over again. Is that you were made for loving intimacy with God. You were made for loving intimacy with God. And it's at the heart of formation. It's at the heart of discipleship. It's at the core of our mission that all that we do, that you're made to experience intimacy with the God who made you and loves you. And then in that, we want then to put ourselves in the best place possible to receive experience and reciprocate that love. You're made for loving intimacy with God and you get to actively participate in that. It's not just passive. You actually can experience intimacy with God. So a couple of passages I want to briefly just touch on tonight. And again, because I think this message is all over the Bible, I could say it a million different ways. I could point to a variety of different passages, and hopefully we'll keep saying it over and over and over again. But if you have a Bible or a Bible app, open up to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. I want to share some imagery and language to describe some of this. So in some ways, this is some really stark prophetic language that Jeremiah uses, but it's really, I think, helpful because it's clear. In a world of a lot of gray, it's pretty clear and stark. Jeremiah 17, 5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But, contrast, parallel image. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. As Jeremiah writes, again, it's, it's poetic language, it's imagery, but he paints this really stark picture. Can you go back to the previous slide, the previous verses? So the headings here, cursed, verse 5, 6, blessed, verse 7 and 8, cursed, blessed. Again, trying to shout and shine light on this clear reality. You tell me, what are some of the characteristics of the one who's cursed in this passage? Just go down line by line. 
Yeah. Cursed is the one who trusts in man. That's creepy. Can you leave the slides? Oh, you're wanting them to be able to see it, aren't you? Let me write these out and then you can pop it up on, for them to be able to read my handwriting. What else? Cursed is the one who makes flesh his strength, or literally it's his arm. What else? Yeah, it turns from the Lord. What else? What's, so then he goes, here's the imagery. What's the image? A shrub in the desert. What else is around the scene? Nothing good comes from where he is. Why? Because it's no good, no water, parched. uninhabited salt land. There's a beautiful image. Uninhabited salt land. When you trust in yourself, when you trust in humanity, when you trust in the world and its ways, it leads you to Death. It leads no good thing. It means you're actually turning from God. You're trying to draw your strength from a resource that cannot satisfy you and cannot sustain life. It will leave you without the means for life. It will leave you parched. It will leave you in the uninhabited salt land, the wasteland, the dead land. And yet this is the picture that the world calls us to Trust in yourself. Do it your own way. Turn from God. You've got this. And Jeremiah says, oh, no, 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 my friends. It's actually cursed. Go to the next part. So this is the path of blessing. What do we got? Trust in the Lord. The trust is the Lord. What else? Now we got a different image. Not just a shrub, but tree planted by water. What's the, what's the picture here? What else is true about this, this person? No fear. Yeah, no f- grounded, rooted. Healthy. Yeah, by the, by the stream. Not anxious. Why? Yeah, not anxious in the year of drought. Ceaseless fruit. My friends, Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah is telling, this is the good life. Trusting in God. And this is not just academic belief in trusting yourself. 
relationship with, grounding in, a source of life. There's a lot of parallels with like a John 17 abiding idea. And I would say that probably some of us are like, okay, yeah, stark contrast, like, do I want to be in the uninhabitable salt land or do I rather have a life that is fruitful and not anxious and connected and grounded? I was thinking you're made, created for intimacy with God. That His Word becomes your Word. His life becomes your life. His strength becomes your strength. You trust in Him. You know Him. You experience Him. And, i got to f- keep going here. I can't read Jeremiah 17 without also thinking of one other passage. Psalm 1. So let me read you Psalm 1 real quick. We have it up on the screen. Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Next slide. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So in some ways, there's this riffing going on between Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17. But I find Psalm 1 actually even helpful. Because rather than just saying, blessed and cursed, I think he shows and describes and talks about the blessed life with some of the different components. And again, I think you've got some of the, some of the same imagery, right? Tree. Planted. Water. Fruit. Not withering. Right, prospering, flourishing. And uh, I, I love the fact that we can celebrate, even as we've talked about tonight, the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. Because I, I can't read Psalm 1 and realize that, that Jesus is the blessed one of Psalm 1. Jesus is the one who fully and perfectly lived this life planted, grounded, rooted, fruitful. And because of Jesus, we then are invited to experience the same. And there's a sense in which the, um, our, our lives are, again, hidden with Christ in God, grounded and rooted in the truth of the gospel, loved unconditionally. And there's nothing you can do to change that. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of Jesus. He takes our curse upon himself and he offers us his blessing. And yet, again, I say, you are are made, you are created for intimacy with God. And some, I think in some ways you could could make this a comparison of, of 
the active and the passive part of our faith, which is both. But here's what I love about the first part of this psalm. Look at verse, back to go one, 1 and 2. Blessed is the one, and, and notice the activity here, walks, stands, sits, delight, meditate. And that's why the, the sermon I want to preach over and over and over again to you is you're created for loving intimacy with God and it is based upon the finished work of Jesus and by faith he grounds us and plants us and roots us in his love. And the invitation though is for us to participate in it too. There's active embodied participation this word meditate. Let me, let me read you a little, little blurb on meditation. These are the words we take in. Words designed for shaping new life in us. Feeding the energies of salvation. This delight develops into meditation. Tor, law, Torah meditation. Meditate, or the word Hagah, is bodily action. It involves murmuring and mumbling words, taking a kind of physical pleasure in making the sounds of the words, getting the feel of meaning as the syllables are shaped by the larynx and tongue and lips. Isaiah used the word meditate for the sound that a lion makes over its prey. <laughs> That's Hebrew. A lion over its catch and a person over the Torah acts similarly. They purr and growl in pleasurable anticipation of taking in what will make them more themselves. Strong, life, swift. This is quite different than merely reading God's word or thinking about it. This is not so much an intellectual process, figuring out meanings, as it is a physical process, hearing and, re and rehearing these words as we sound them again, letting the sound sink into our muscles and bones. Meditation is mastication. And I was like, what's mastication mean? Anyone know what mastication means? Yeah, oh, we got Dennis in the house. Uh, it means to chew. Mastication is the process of food with saliva being chewed. Yeah. Down into our muscles and bones. This is active, embodied participation in the with God life. It's not just sitting back and thinking about it. God's desire for us as his people you're made for intimacy with him, and you get a part to play in that. That God's word, his truth, his love works its way into our bones, and that there's a part that we get to act in that. Our delight is in it. Meditation on it. This is our invitation to actually participate in his love. And I need help with that. And my sense is that you probably do too. And we want to help each other as a community.
to cultivate? How do we actually, actively participate and put ourselves in the best possible position to experience loving intimacy with God? The good news is, is that we're a few thousand years into this and we're not the first ones trying to do this. And Jesus invites us to follow his way, to be formed in his way, to follow his practices, to learn from those who have gone before us. Hebrews 11, I'll close with this. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Or another translation says that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He rewards those who diligently seek him. I want to seek him. I believe the Spirit is beckoning, calling, inviting, reality, church. Would you be willing to diligently seek him? Would you be willing to earnestly seek him? Draw near. We get to have the life, the blessed life, the the intimacy with God life, the deep root life that we get to participate in how that we experience that together. Not just in our heads, but in our lives. Embodied participation with God to get this into our bones, get this into our muscles, into our heads, into our hearts. Because God, God loves you because God loves you with an unrelenting forever love. And as disciples who have said yes to Jesus, are you willing to do whatever it takes to put ourselves in position to experience that, to learn from those who have gone before us? The practice, the way of Jesus. I'll tell you, God says this is the good life. This is the green tree rooted, grounded Life in the love that stands at the center of the universe. You're made for loving intimacy with God. Presence of God. You're made to hear his voice. You're made to know his word. And you get to actively participate in that. What a gift. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Spirit... There's disorientation happening among us, disruptions, discouragements. And yet, the the offer is immense. It's incredible what you've accomplished through Jesus for us. Even the story of the tree, where the human story began in the garden with a tree. And Jesus, you were willing to be crucified on a tree that we may partake one day, Revelation 22, new heavens and new earth with the trees of life lining the river in your presence forever. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we admit, we don't really know how to do this very well. And we want to know more. And we want to figure out what practices, what habits, what things put us in the best position possible to actually participate in what you have offered us here. So Lord, would you teach us and show us and lead us deeper into the fruitful, non-anxious, sustaining, life-giving tree that you offer us. In Jesus' name.
Amen.